0: I share common experiences with anybody who's sort of gotten in, you know, who's stepped up and spoken out. It's risky, it's scary, it's lonely. Um, And if something inside uh, makes you like me, feel compelled that you have to do this, this is the right thing to do. And, and somebody has to name the issue and As you say, speak truth to power and hope that you break down some barriers and make it easier for for others uh, to speak up. Hello.
1: Today I chat with Frida K. who is this amazing woman who has been at the forefront of diversity in the tech industry for many decades. And she just wrote this great book called Closing the Equity Gap, which is about A bunch of founders who are building at the frontier and they're building, they're like, you know, at the frontier of disadvantaged communities. And so they're like from these places and they're building for these places. And it just shows how much, you know, juicy frontier there is around these you know traditionally disadvantaged folks it makes me think of you know seatbelts and how they were just made for dudes in like the 1970s or whatever and it was like oh all the women were dying well that's cuz the dudes weren't thinking about it you know and so it's, there's a similar like arbitrage opportunity here um and so Frieda and I we chat about kind of three big topics one of them is the frontiers of you know cultural fabric that she's been on you know and i think that started with You know, sexual harassment for her, it was before it was illegal. This is 1976. She's been an expert testimony for all these things. It's like how to move the needle around the conversation around a cultural fabric like, oh, sexual harassment's fine in the workplace, blah, blah, blah. You know, and and, and, then applying that to her current cultural frontier of how do we, you know, dispel these myths around investing in, you know, marginalized groups and that that is, you know, those are myths, you know, they're there, the firm has been super successful. And so we kind of chat about how to kind of nudge cultural fabrics and the, you know, these, these having her been at these, you know, frontiers for a long time, what that looks like. So that's kind of one piece. The second is, you know, this amazing filter she has around gap closing versus gap widening. And so... A gap closing activity is something like an $8 a month tutoring program, while a gap widening activity is like a $300 a month, $300 an hour kind of private tutor. And so, how, if you have that lens on in your life, you get to see, you get to ignore the things that are gap widening, and you get to like work for the things that are gap closing, and that that's a really helpful lens. And then, finally, third, we talk about this other lens, which is the distance traveled lens, which is instead of looking at someone as, you know, oh, they went to Stanford, boom, they're great. Instead, you look at how, where they, where they came from, and where they are now, and if that distance traveled is large. And this is like the classic, like, don't you know, hire someone for y-intercept, hire someone for the slope of their their x their x-axis, you know, or the slope of the line. That's what you want to be doing. And so that distance traveled lens is a great way to kind of again view the world and be like, whoa, here's this person. Where'd they come from? Where are they now? Oh wow, it's a massive distance traveled. They're going to be an awesome, um, you know, an agent, agent, agentic human being. So those are three big things we chat about. It's a good conversation. And I hope you enjoy learning about these gap closing and distance traveled um, activities. Thanks. Hello, Reese's Pieces. I'm Reese, the founder of Root, and welcome to The Reese Show. I believe the best way to predict the future is to build it. And so I'm interviewing pioneers on the frontier to understand what the world will look like and the secrets behind how they're building it. These are insights from the frontier. And today, I'm excited to chat with Frida Kapor-Klein. Frida was a founder of the Kapor Center and Kapor Capital, has been at the forefront of diversity in tech for many decades, uh, and recently wrote a book on closing the equity gap. Frida, thanks for being on the show and welcome.
0: I'm delighted to be here, Reese. Thank you.
1: Yeah, excited to dive in. And it's Frida's one of those amazing people where you're like... As you kind of pill yourself into the, um, diversity in tech world and you're like oh project include is cool and mm-hmm. all in is cool and all this stuff oh wow what happened with all the me too and tech stuff it's like oh frida was like there for all this <laughs> <stuff>. <laughs>
0: well that's one that's the bright side of being old i've been around a long time <laughs> but that's
1: great and it's cool and it's cool too for like when young people listen to stuff and they're like wow all these old people have done more it's like yeah you're like tw- you're like 22 you you like you'll have time you know <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so don't exactly. worry exactly um, yeah, so I want to dive into, um, you know, trying to understand, you know, the frontier of this this tech gap. And, and I think actually thinking of it, I was actually thinking about this before the show myself, which is like thinking of it like a frontier, I think is correct. You know, there are these like artificial intelligence frontiers or cryptocurrency frontiers or whatever, where it's like the tech frontiers there. But this is a, a cultural frontier where we have our current status quo, which is kind of mm-hmm. dumb of just like rich white dudes just like continuing to like accumulate power and wealth um but there's this frontier where we're trying to push into this new crazy world um where there are uh where you know traditionally marginalized groups are a bigger part of these these wealth creation events so that's kind of the 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 macro frame and i Mm -hmm. guess before um doing anything i guess i just want to know from you like how
0: did you get into this stuff why did you like
1: you know dedicate your life to like helping you know marginalized groups within technology
0: well, going way back, I, I've sort of always had a social and racial justice lens. So I used to cut middle school and go picket for the farm workers. And I make sure that I don't tell that. We've been running a summer math and science honors academy for low income high school kids of color. And I try not to tell them that story because I'm a terrible role model if you look at that. But, um, and, I then, you know, given the era I grew up in, there was a Black Panther Party and a civil rights movement. There was a resurging feminist movement. There was an anti-war movement. So there were social and racial justice issues all around um, that that really helped form me um, as a teen and and young adult. So I went on, I co-founded the first group on sexual harassment in 1976 before it was even illegal. Um, and so sort of grew up with, uh, with that issue. And that opened all these other doors to me. So that's when I began to understand a lot about how organizations work, how corporations work, how do you address social and racial justice issues in the context of business? Um, and so just you can see the, the evolution And as I was looking more and more to where the centers of power are and how do you change those, that's what got me uh, interested in on the investing side. But I did a PhD in social policy and research, dissertation on sexual harassment, and my first job out of graduate school was at Lotus Development Corporation, the spreadsheet 123, Lotus Notes. So I was deep in the tech of the moment. And my job description was to make Lotus the most progressive employer in the U.S. So how can you turn that down? And I have never seen that job description since, which is really sad, uh, because I think we need more CEOs, more founders um, to embrace what can be, as you say, what can be the frontier of building organizational culture.
1: Yeah, I love that. That's a, yeah, it's a cool... Well, hey, it also makes me think of like how uh, – like a, the Hillary Clinton when she was running for president and she tells the story of being in her Harvard law school class. And it was just like – and all the like the men there, all the boys were just like, you don't deserve to – be they were just like saying all these like awful, awful things to her. And she, and, and it was just like, oh my god. And so um, thinking about that in the context and like for you like doing sexual harassment stuff and being like, hey, this is like – this is actually an issue, people, and we can't have this. I'm, I'm curious for you personally – when someone speaks truth to power, the power people don't like it. Um, have you had any like intense or how have you dealt with people being like, shut up, Frida, or like, hey, don't, don't talk about that? Or like, how, what has that been like for you? What have been some of the more intense moments with that?
0: Well, it's a great question. And um, I think I, I share common experiences with anybody who's sort of gotten in, you know, who's stepped up and spoken out. It's risky, it's scary, it's lonely. Um, and if something inside uh, makes you, like me, feel compelled that you have to do this, this is the right thing to do, and, and somebody has to name the issue and, as you say, speak truth to power and hope that you break down some barriers and make it easier for, for others uh, to speak up. But it, so that was true way back, talking about sexual harassment, when nobody wanted to hear about it. Um, and I was an expert witness for a couple decades in many, many uh, lawsuits trying to change sort of what what employers were expected to do. But that's a little bit what carries over to what goes on now in investing. There is a very common myth There were many myths about sexual harassment, some of which still persist. There are many myths about investing, including that investing for impact or investing with the diversity lens is, quote unquote, concessionary, meaning that you give up financial returns if you focus on impact and or diversity. And we've proven otherwise. Uh, And so, you know, one by one, we try to shoot down these myths and give positive examples of change,
1: yeah, I like that. It's a um, it's it, and it's a tough thing with as you're you know these just like the water we swim in for something like the sexual harassment world where it's like it's normal for dudes to just I don't know to like be like kind of sketchy people in the office. It's like and it's like wait a second, like that shouldn't be true. And here's the impacts of it and blah blah blah. And so you have to kind of pull everybody into a new kind of cultural fabric um, mm-hmm. that exists. And and similarly within tech investing, it's like oh maybe we'll kind of. Well, maybe we you know have a, the the allocation of our portfolio for diverse folks but like no it's like what you guys I mean you guys had 29% IRR um mm-hmm. and, and turn rate of return for these uh for your portfolio which is like in the top quartile or whatever and so it's like yeah you can make money by doing good and because there's so much especially because um yeah yeah our society, there's people have been neglected for a long time so there's a lot of like value a lot of like easy value to, easy and hard value to get there let's let's kind of start with that for a second then which is how, um, in, in your book, you do a great job of um showing a bunch of these examples, um, of you know companies that are um just building great things that are with you know traditionally marginalized founders, you know, women, BIPOC folks, and that they're working also with often traditionally marginalized or BIPOC folks. What, um, yeah, how, how, I guess, hmm, what's my question here? Tell us about. What it's like to, um, like, what kind of unique uh, frame those folks have on the world, and how that allows you to have these outsized returns.
0: Um, Great question, and we have honed in on a very specific definition of impact because in this day and age, impact means all things to all people, and it gets very confusing if you're trying to invest for impact. Well, do you want to impact climate change? Do you want to cap uh, impact? Racial wealth gaps. Do you want to impact homelessness and unhoused? You, you know, food insecurity. Unfortunately, there's an enormous number of social problems that need solving. Many, not all, many can benefit from private market solutions if you've got the right founders, the right backers, the the right framing. So we honed in in 2011 on a very specific set of investment criteria. So we only invest in tech startups, and that is because we believe that tech is the only thing that gives you scale. And scale is what you need to solve big, intractable social problems. Uh, So all of the tech startups we invest in, the core business has to close gaps of access or opportunity or outcome for low-income communities and or communities of color. And so it's not a Tom Shoes model where you buy one, give one away. It's not uh, after we're profitable, we're gonna set up a foundation. It is inextricably linked to the business itself. The core business has to tackle these gaps. Uh, and so that makes it much harder to say, oh, well, times are rough, take impact out of your, out of your purpose. So that's been our focus, 100% investing in gap-closing businesses since 2011. And as you said, top quartile returns, not just for diversity funds, not just for impact funds, top quartile when we're put up against mainstream VC firms of our size and vintage that only sought out to make money. Those who were just looking to make money, we beat 75% of them.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I love that. It's it's kind of like a classic um thing too where it's like when you're hiring folks, um the way I think about it is you just have to you're not lowering your bar what you're doing is you're just slightly you're just increasing your aperture and you're thinking okay let's like make our pipeline bigger and then let's like just try to have it and let's actually track it and see you know like how many people and then when you do that it's not like then come in these like if you're looking i don't know if some engineer it's not like oh here's this woman who's like oh she's so much worse but we still have to take her it's like no. You just had to look, um, <laughs> and so um, that's been my rough. Um, when I'm hiring and stuff, that's kind of the energy. And so it's cool uh-huh. to hear. So, but I have a question for you, which is I think one of my first startups was one that was like helping um, low-income kids make music, and it, and it was hard to like you know low-income kids don't have much money, and so blah blah yeah. blah. And so we had to constantly move up market, and all all these weird things. So how do you? So, so it, that kind of energy—it's like maybe, and maybe I give an example or something. Like, how can one make money helping lower-income folks when the lower-income folks
0: don't even have money in the first place, or whatever? You know, it's a great question, and and that barrier stops a lot of entrepreneurs. Uh, and again, I want to say there are some social issues that require public funding or philanthropic funding that the. Private market can't solve everything. And it's important to understand the limits of venture capital or, and which or ones, any other. Yeah. Tell us
1: about which ones are good for f- private versus which ones are good for philanthropic.
0: Well, what's interesting is that there are things in every sector that fall into both buckets. So we have invested, for instance, in ed tech companies that are gap closing. But you will also see an awful lot of gap widening ed tech companies out there. And let let me just give you a a couple of examples and we can stick to one theme, which is tutoring. So it's possible to spend $300 an hour to get your kid tutored. That is a gap widening business because only people who can afford $300 an hour can use that service. And so the gap between kids who have that kind of help and those who don't just widens things. So we would never, no matter how great the quality of tutoring, we just wouldn't invest in that. We do invest in a company called Numerade that has answers, video answers to basically every textbook problem there is. Uh, and they're an, actually a really great example of leveraging AI to uh, very quickly deploy more and more. What's their cost? $8 a month right? And so $8 a month is accessible for lots and lots and lots of people. And if for some reason that $8 a month isn't accessible, that's, where, that's an easy amount of money for a school, a school district, a city, a community, a philanthropy to pick up um, so that you're not going to ever have that being a gap widening kind of business. And there are similar examples. There's health tech, digital health Um, There's concierge medicine where you can pay thousands of dollars a year just to join a practice. Uh, And there's also um, digital health that is focusing on the crisis in maternal health, especially for black women.
1: Cool. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And so what I'm hearing is that there's a well, a, for the listeners, it's like, yeah, this great frame that Frida has around gap widening versus gap closing is just a very helpful thing where you look at something and and at those examples, it's very clear, You're like, oh, here's this like random app that just like helps rich people make more money. To, that doesn't really that's pretty gap widening versus like, mm-hmm. oh, here's this thing that like is actively helping like um provide more opportunity to poorer folks or whatever. It's like, oh, that seems like a gap closing one. So that's kind of that little frame is helpful. And I think there's a and what I'm hearing is that. It's kind of a. In many ways, it's a cost of the service. Where it's like, if something costs less, then that thing can be a gap closing activity. Is that is that roughly what I'm hearing? Is that one of the key well, things? That's part
0: of it. So so part of it is the overall cost, indeed. Uh, but you've got to, with a very low cost, you've got to maintain a very high quality. So it's it's what is what does the product or service deliver? But it's also, as you were as as you were hinting at we look very closely at if this business succeed, who benefits? Uh, Who does it help? And one of the interesting things like $8 a month tutoring, it helps everybody. That family that was going to pay 300 an hour, they have a whole lot more disposable income now that hopefully they'll do something good with it. But at any rate, it's not like an $8 a month tutoring company hurts anyone. Mm -hmm. And so while we focus on, closing the gap, most of the companies have services that, that also help other folks, um, help everybody, that, that helps businesses. I mean, one of my uh, favorite examples of a company in our portfolio that many, many mainstream venture capitalists uh, passed is Bitwise Industries. They're based in Fresno, California, um, not the usual place you go look for the hot startup. Um, Two Latinx co-founders, Jake and Irma, uh, and they are the largest supplier of tech apprentices in the country. They're in 10 cities and growing. They're making a lot of money and they're transforming thousands of lives directly as the apprentices and tens of thousands um, by their families and hundreds of thousands by their communities.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. It's I think that those examples, them career karma, some of the stuff that you guys do with your like um, the like STEM uh, high school STEM program for for Mm -hmm. folks. Those are just those ones are so clearly like good answers too. Which is like look. You know, it's like if you have these people who are here where, you know, opportunity, um, you know, talent is evenly distributed, but opportunity is not. If you can somehow, there's essentially a lever, you know, an arbitrage opportunity there where if you Mm -hmm. find the folks who can be awesome apprentices, boom, they come through the tech system, they go through whatever system, they get upskilled and then they're making a lot more money. And if they're making Mm -hmm. more money, well, then you can make more money as a business. And so I think those like education ones Mm -hmm. are really um, clear and easy one. Let me ask you about this ecosystem as a whole, though, which I think is kind of interesting. Which is that you guys have like you know the Kapoor um, uh, Capital, but also the Kapoor Center, mm-hmm. and so. It's like, and I think some of the best people. I'm reminded of some of the folks in the psychedelics industry that, like, are a VC firm that then give, um, you know, 50% of their carry back to um, MAPS and these other kinds of uh, psychedelic agencies that are, like, researching the future of psychedelics. Mm-hmm. And there's, like, a similar ish thing with, like, the k um Capital and Kapor Center. Tell us about like the center and like some of the research that you guys are doing, whether that is there, is that actually a, a feedback loop between those two things or what's going on there?
0: Um, feedback loop is a, is a great descriptor. Um, there is very close integration. So Kapoor Capital, Kapor Center and SMASH. Uh, SMASH is the nonprofit Summer Math and Science Honors Academy. Uh, this is its 20th year. Um, and uh, on ten university campuses, Uh, but all three, very importantly, we're all housed together. Uh, And so not, you know, now this, this COVID post COVID era, not everybody's in the building every day, Uh, but still it's very important that our colleagues work across these sectors, but we're all working to solve the same issues because we have a lot of insight. So for instance, when an ed tech company comes in to pitch us on a new way to teach computer science, we say to Dr. Allison Scott, who's the CEO of Kapor Center, why don't you sit in on this pitch? Because after all, you at Kapor Center put out a national framework for culturally responsive computer science education. And so we've got these built-in experts to give us insights into, well, is this really gonna work? You're in the classroom every day uh, with kids or all summer long or whatever context it is. Tell us, how are teachers gonna respond to this? How are kids gonna respond to this? How are parents gonna respond to this? Would a school district ever buy this? So there is an awful lot of very practical synergy and there's a lot of sort of ideological uh, synergy, which is to think about what well, you know. How can we do this in the best possible way to help as many people as possible? Yeah. And some of our for-profits, I mentioned, I mentioned Bitwise. They've also started their own org, their own nonprofit, uh, because they also see the need to to be able to grant money or services or things. Uh, and so sometimes our foundation will work on projects. Uh, So, for instance, with Bitwise, right after the pandemic hit in 2020, um, it was uh, a couple of dozen women of color who had been through the Bitwise apprenticeship program who in two weeks stood up a dynamic website to help families uh, families and individuals impacted by COVID. You could go there for emergency services. We all lost our jobs. We're sick. We don't have any food. They would bring you food. I need to go to my job, but I need child care. My child care provider, that went away with COVID. Okay, we'll help you with child care. The second category was jobs. Here are jobs in your zip code around your skill set. So not, not something wild that you couldn't possibly do and not something that you have to move across the country, but that kind of Dynamism in in making useful services available to people, uh, and the third was then in in the job training. So, but uh, paid apprenticeships. So Bitwise pays you to go to school, and they w- one of the brilliant things about Bitwise. And there's a Bitwise in Oakland. There are four Bitwise locations in California, and then they've scaled outside of California. Uh, Buffalo, Las Cruces, New Mexico, south side of Chicago, um, really interesting Toledo communities. But the, in, the key insight of Bitwise is it's not a lack of motivation. It's not a lack of talent that keeps people from getting upskilled. It's daily life gets in the way. I have a family to feed. I don't have transportation. I don't have childcare. How am I going to get to school? So they are paid apprenticeships that help you with transportation and with child care. And guess what? Six months later, when you had, you know, that now that you've gone through the program, you gave up your minimum wage retail job or factory job. You've now doubled your salary. It's good for everybody. It contributes to the tax base. I mean, there's nobody who doesn't benefit from that kind of expanding the pie.
1: Yes, totally. Yeah. It's, it's a, um, it's interesting too, because I feel like there's a, you know, thinking about that, the, the like gap of, of, you know, in in the, the, you know, talent evenly distributed, but opportunity is not. And the kinds of things that keep people from, um, yeah, doing, getting higher paying jobs, founding companies, whatever. How do you think about, um, and, and I think you have another good frame in your book around like, you know, this it's not about the distance traveled, uh or sorry, it is about the distance traveled, it's not about the finish line. Where when you're looking at someone, you're like, oh wow, you like it's kind of like you started from the bottom, now you're here. And even if you're you're here here is slightly less than the like random us, like, you know, I don't know, white, rich white guy like Reese or whatever, it's like, oh my god, you're already like he's he's like only a little bit above you, but like he essentially started there, so he hasn't really done anything his whole life. So like how do you um how has that frame, kind of like the gap closing, gap winding frame, how has that frame helped you um kind of find or kind of I don't know, do talent search or like kind of understand this the ecosystem.
0: But distance traveled is, is something that is very powerful and very meaningful to me. And um, I came up with it somewhere in the two decades ago frame. One of the things I did, I'm an alum of UC Berkeley as an undergrad. Uh, and after Proposition 209 passed, which was in I think 96 in California outlawing affirmative action in public institutions so the the whole country right now is bracing for the Supreme Court decision in June but those of us connected to public institutions in California have been dealing with this for you know 30 years close to um, and so after prop 209 was passed there were four of us who got together who were UC Berkeley alum uh, alumni and wanted to do something meaningful and we started a private, scholarship program for kids who had been admitted race blind into Berkeley. So they got in under the new proposition, new law, new rules. And then we created a race conscious scholarship program to create a community so that they would feel that they were welcome on campus since Prop 209 was such an exclusionary and unwelcoming kind of stance. Uh, And I learned a lot of things from that program about building that community We replaced student loans, we replaced work study, we gave them laptops, we gave them tutoring, we helped them get summer jobs aligned with their field. And we just had amazing stars out of that program. And in fact, three of them work with us to this day, 20 years later. Um, One is the co-managing partner of Or Capital. Uh, One is our senior head of Uh, Comms and and marketing, and one leads all of our tech policy efforts. So, very talented people, very senior jobs. And it was understanding that uh, a person who every day had to make a decision about whether I eat lunch and walk home three, four, five miles, or whether I take the bus and don't eat lunch, that people who had to figure out how to get where they got, how to better themselves, how to support their families with the most humble of resources. That those people had a determination, a resilience, a passion that all turn out to be wonderful predictors of talent and success and to be essential qualities for an entrepreneur because there are, as you well know, so many bumps in the road for entrepreneurs.
1: Yeah, that's great. It's like a um and it's, I think of it as a similar thing when you're kind of and and, and I live with um uh, I live in a house that has three formerly incarcerated folks in it, former lifers, and you hear mm-hmm. about their um just like their childhoods and you're like, "Oh my god." God, <laughs> that's brutal. And, and, and that, and you can, you also, I also kind of see myself and then sometimes was like, you know, one of my housemates, he was just like a nerd kid and then was bullied. And then that turned him more violent, you know, or like, you know, this other, you know, one of my other housemates, he went and had, um, you know, he, he, he became homeless at the age of like 12 or whatever. And so it's like those, and, and now they are these amazing aware individuals who are just like um who are extremely you know productive and all these things that you would kind of expect of normal people but they've had to do this path which is really really intense um and so it's interesting cuz like so so i have a question then which is um so we have this ecosystem let's 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 frame it as like there's all of this untapped um all this untapped market with, you know, folks who are with, you know, under traditionally underserved folks. And there's all these really agentful um, young folks who just didn't have the opportunity initially, but actually are really agentic and, and can, you know, do be great entrepreneurs or whatever. Why is it the case then that we still see something like, I don't know, I think it was like 13 or, you know, uh, black folks are 13% of the population, but I think 1% of VC dollars go to black entrepreneurs right now. Mm -hmm. So why is there Mm -hmm. still this like 10 X gap? If, all this agency and all these good problems exist, you know, to tell us about what's still stopping us from getting there or something. I'm not sure.
0: Well, you know, I, I do think there is such a thing as systemic racism. And I don't know if people feel that, you know, hear that and think that's just a buzzword or just, you know, woke talk or whatever, but
1: it's like the clearest. Yes. There is. it's like, of course there's systemic racism. Of course there's systemic sexism. It's like, Oh my, yeah. So sorry. Uh, but but yes. you, w-
0: you won't get many standard issue venture capitalists on sand hill road to say that.
1: Uh-huh. And
0: so I think we have to figure out who the gatekeepers are and what they believe and, and how to talk to them. And so for instance, I completely agree with what you said. There is all that talent out there, but and, and I sometimes take issue. There are a lot of folks that say there is no pipeline problem. I respectfully disagree. I understand what they're saying, but if you look at who has access to computer science education, whether it's California or whether it's US-wide, there is an enormous difference based on your zip code. And as you were pointing out, you know, if you're homeless at 12, it has nothing to do with you. It is an accident of birth. It is, you know, lucky, unlucky, where'd you get, where'd you fall in the birth lottery? And we tend to ascribe judgment to kids about the circumstances they were born into, which is truly nuts. But so if we look at the disparate ac- access to computer science, we see that's the beginning of what we call the leaky tech pipeline, that where people fall out of the pipeline that get us to a 1% VC funding. So that's a piece of it. all these places that people fall out. Along the leaky tech pipeline are plenty of biases and barriers. So if you've got your algorithms on your hiring that are set to, I only want you know, Ivy League schools in Stanford. I only want computer science degrees. I only want, you know, uh, it used to be a common refrain, I want a Stanford computer science graduate who worked at Google. Well, those aren't skills. Those are pedigrees, many of which are accidents of birth. So do you, do you want a legacy admit uh, and a nepotism hire? Uh, like- exactly what are you going to get in terms of passion or drive or talent or skill. So I think we need to be a little less lazy in our hiring. Uh, And I think that's where distance traveled is a much better metric than pedigrees.
1: Yep. I love that. It makes me think there's a, um, there's a video from The Economist, maybe six months to a year ago, about a group in the UK that was specifically looking at distance hired, and they instead of uh, a distance traveled, rather, where it's like, "Hey, here is," and, for, and for, as a hiring thing, where you look at folks and you and you and that was the like the main metric in this whatever hiring dashboard it was like, "Oh my God, this person's traveled so much distance," um, and so yeah, I think that, that makes sense. And I think yeah, as you said, we still have a leaky tech pipeline, um, and so it's, yeah, it's always this this balance of like. And I guess I have a, a more macro question. You know, you were talking about you've been doing this stuff for a while and, and you before the show, you and I were chatting about like, you know, two steps forward, one step back, one step sideways. You know, sometimes I feel excited by this stuff where I'm like, oh man, there's all these things and look at all these, you know, reading your book. It's like, oh, these all these amazing entrepreneurs are doing great stuff. Like kind of as you expect, this is great. And then I and then you see the other side and you're like, I mean, and the one that was brutal for me the other day was seeing in San Francisco, the average incomes of different people by um race and white folks from 2010 to 2020 white folks went from $100,000 median income to $150,000 so they were like one5 would and then black folks went they were started at 30,000 so they were they were already so much less and then they just stayed at 30,000 you know and it was just like i just look at it's it like oh my god this is in a progressive city you know and so that those so i sometimes get sad too so <laughs> um how do you navigate optimism and sadness and, you know, are we actually moving forward? Are we moving back? How are we doing?
0: Um, are we moving forward or back? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we are. Mov- and, you know, every day, every week tends to bring an example of both. What I do find, and again, I you know, I'm an optimist and um, Who else would do this work for this many decades? Maybe a masochist, who knows? Uh, But I do remain an optimist and I remain incredibly inspired every day by our entrepreneurs, by the entrepreneurs who pitch us, whether we end up backing them or not, but just the human creativity. And again, when we are known for diversity and impact, we disproportionately get to see people who absolutely are passionate about making the world a better place in in one form or one dimension or another. So I, you know, and and part of why we wrote the book is to say, look, there are a lot of myths we need to dispel. There is a possibility to make substantive change on very difficult issues and for people to make a lot of money along the way. Um, And so... Why shouldn't more people dive in and try this?
1: Yeah, cool. Yeah, I like that. I think I think that like to just underscore that point for a second, it is from the perspective of a VC, it's, you know, who's listening to this or who's reading the book or whatever. It's like, you can't help but be like, oh, okay, you can actually still make top quartile returns. In fact, it might be easier. Who knows? You know, maybe you guys are just like closing your eyes and, you know, you're shooting fish in a barrel and those fish turn, you know. <laughs> um, and, um, uh, but if you if you choose, just like, oh, if you like, Kind of choose a good market or have some kind of good frame on the world. This is one of those really good frames, which is that oh man, there's a bunch of agentic folks and there's a lot of quote unquote arbitrage to be had with you know supporting them in these you know um, these markets that are traditionally uh, unserved. So that that's like to the VC that's listening or whatever, and then also to the founder that's listening, where it's like you can just point at the, um, all these awesome founders that are doing stuff. It's like, look, they were kind of, they had to do a lot of distance travel too. And they had to fight through all this kind of bullshit. Yep. Um, and, but, uh, but you can do it too. It's, it's, you know, it's like, there's a lot of folks that have, and, 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 and you can as well. Um, so God, so do you think, how do you see, I guess, you know, what are some of the most important things that need to happen in the next kind of, you know, five or 10 years to, to really kind of push this forward and to get it to be the case where it's like, yeah, I don't know where they're closer to no gap, you know?
0: Well, good question and an important question. I think we have to keep challenging the myths. So we have to challenge the myth with data and with case studies about investing with a diversity lens, investing with an impact lens is not concessionary. And as you said, it might even be a strategic advantage. Um, I think we have to push back about the myth that, that if you went to a top school, you're therefore top talent. Um, that I don't think the data would completely support that. I think we have to talk about the importance, certainly in the entrepreneurial world, the importance of lived experience, that the founder, having been through a key problem, is in the best position to describe the problem and invent the solution, and that that's what gives them the passion. And we've got lots of great examples um, of, of that in the book. I think the other thing that needs to happen, very importantly, is consumers need to vote more with their pocketbook in terms of values alignment of the, of the products and services and companies they support. Uh, I especially think, um, and, and also similarly, employees need to vote with their feet more when they have a choice. Not everybody has the luxury of a choice um, about where to work. But if you have a choice, pick values alignment because you will be happier, you will be more productive. And it's important for companies to know how many people actually care. Um, But a huge area that I think has not yet been tapped is I want everyone to think a little bit more about If you're lucky enough and fortunate enough to have a 401k, um, where is it invested? Who's investing it? What values, what investment criteria do they use? Would you be horrified if you knew where your retirement retirement dollars are gonna be sitting for decades and what companies they're gonna be supporting? And why isn't there more of a push for investment alternatives that look at impact and look at diversity.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, got it. And I think, so let's double, double click on that one for a second, because I think the the difficult part of it is that it might get into the, you know, the um, more muddy overall ESG category or whatever. Yep. And so- yep. Um, I, let's say I'm a person who, in fact, I am a person who has a 401k, um, should and I, I remember looking, I looked, I was like, okay, should I put this in the ESG thingy or from Vanguard or should I put it in this other thingy? I remember when I was like 17 and did my first like investing, you know, as a, um, as a privileged child, I, um, I put it into green companies, right. As the clean tech, I don't know. So, 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 so I don't know. So is there a, um, is that you know, is it is it worth it to like put to put to invest your four hundred one k in like ESG stocks or you know tell us more about that?
0: Well, it's a very important question. ESG, environmental, social, governance, is a set of criteria that actually grew out of the UN United Nations Development Goals, sustainability goals, decades ago. It has become very blurry. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not clear. And in the same way, impact means anything and everything to everybody these days. And, and that's true on ESG. It has become a lot of performative nonsense in many cases. And um, as um, my husband, Mitch, likes to say, you know, same thing with B Corp. If you have enough recycling baskets, you know, you can earn enough points and it doesn't matter that you actually invest in fossil fuels. It's it's um, so you have to dig deeply on what does it really mean. Um, but for us, using very clear investment criteria about g- gap closing, we know who benefits. We know that 60% of our founders are underrepresented. Um, we know who's benefiting from their businesses, and we know that we're getting top quartile returns. So unfortunately, things are, you know, we've got a lot of, um Nonsense marketing, um, but that's not new. And that, you know, we have to wade through nonsense marketing to decide what food to eat. And so we're going to have to wade through some nonsense marketing to decide where we invest. But I would hope that there would become much more rigorous and much more available um, real gap closing impact diversity lens investment options.
1: Yeah, yeah. I agree with that. And I think in the folks that are, you know, anti-ESG or whatever. It's like that's true, but like I, I think it's good that there's a. We're at the beginning of a, a, this, the ESG framework. We're at the beginning of B Corps. We're at the beginning. You know, Etsy had to file their B Corp. You know, with the SEC thing of like the hey, here's how our double bottom line actually worked this last year and blah. So, so I think yeah, we're just at the beginning of these things and and still trying to. um you know help create and 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 be values aligned and, and do do the right thing um, with your money seems seems good. So mm-hmm. I have a question actually for you which is this this we've been talking a lot about the investing side um but in the, I you know did some googling before but correct me if I'm wrong, are also are you stepping back from investing is that true and if so what are you what are you what are you doing you know?
0: <laughs> good question and great story. Um so Mitch and I as founders of Capore Capital in 2011 um, have stepped back. We are now the largest limited partners in Kapor Capital 3. We are not the general partners making investment decisions. The general partners are Ulili Anavakpuri and Brian Dixon. They are the co-managing partners who have been with us for more than a decade each. Uh, Ulili is somebody who I actually met in that Berkeley scholarship program Uh, and so she started on the nonprofit side, migrated to venture capital, went to business school, went to another firm, and luckily we got her back. Uh, but in 2011, Ulili, partly based on her experience in our scholarship program at Berkeley came to me and said, can I start a summer associates program to give, you know, give open a door for people, um, who don't know what venture capital is to have an opportunity to check it out. And I thought that was just a brilliant idea. And so we said, sure. So the first summer associate she hired was Brian Dixon. The fact that they are now the two co-managing partners, I mean, it just warms my heart. It's yeah. it's the contemporary mailroom to CEO story mm-hmm. on the investment uh, world. And you know they've been with us a long time. They are fabulous human beings. They are terrific investors. Um, Over the, they've been partners, each of them has been partners for many years, um, at least five years, and year by year, they each led more and more deals. Um, And so it was just a wonderful thing to be able to hand over the reins. So we're still involved as LPs, Mitch and I still do investing out of the foundation endowment. Mm -hmm. um, But that's at at a much at a smaller scale. Um, and we're investing in funds, in in new funds, um, mostly by um, underestimated first time fund managers. Distance
1: travel, distance traveled people. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Yeah, yeah.
1: And so, so got so, so your. So you've kind of, so I guess, are you like, have you, are you retiring or I don't know? It's like you had a job, like my simple guys, like you had a job here and now are you, are you, are, are you just, you know, LPing into fund, you know, funds or what's kind of the, what's your day to day, you know?
0: A little of all of the above. I would okay. say we are on a glide path of stepping back. Cool. Um, we're still pretty far away from retiring altogether. And, um, you know, and, and there were many things that were happening under the Or Capital umbrella that have now moved over to Or Center. Now that Brian and Lily have limited partners, cool. and so they have to, you know, they're under a lot of scrutiny, living within their management fees, all that stuff. And so the things that we used to be able to do, like start the summer associates program, we've moved it over to Or Center, um, and have grown it, cool. Um, cool. because we want to make it available to. Uh, not just to Cape Hor Capital, we want to make summer fellows available to other smaller venture capital firms.
1: Yeah, I love it. Got it. and yeah, so it's so and I get the vibe of yeah, it's not um, it, you know one doesn't one to zero go from working every day to retirement. like you guys are doing this thing where you're kind of you're you're vibing more. You're kind of taking a slow a, the the decade long step back. Um, so that that makes a lot of
0: sense. Exactly. Um, well, we've, we've got this amazing leadership, and uh, so Brian and New have been with us. Um, for well over a decade. Allison Scott, who's the CEO of War Center, who I mentioned, has been with us at least a dozen years. Um, so we've got this wonderful talent and we might as well get out of their way and let exactly. them lead, right? You'd the
1: squad, yeah, you'd let the squad squad it up. Um, beautiful. So as we get into to rap mode here, um, let me ask one final question, then do an overrated, underrated thing. So the question is, what advice do you have for ambitious young folks who are yeah. Ambitious young. I
0: guess. Yeah. just what advice do you have for ambitious young people? Well, for ambitious young people, um, my advice is pursue your passion, pursue what matters. Think about the difference you want to make in the world. Um, think about what's going to help you sleep at night um, about the choices that you make. Everybody has to make choices about supporting themselves uh, maybe contributing, you know, helping support parents, siblings, others. So everybody has to make their own choices uh, uh, on that basis. Um, but look for values alignment whenever and wherever you can, uh, because it's an awful experience to show up at a job you hate, to show up at a job where you feel you check yourself at the door every day, to show up and feel like you're contributing to something that is making the world a worse place.
1: Yeah, cool. Yeah, I like that. I think it's like um you can do that for uh 6 months or sometimes people even do it for 6 years or 60 years, but hopefully you can like really check in with yourself and be like, hey, "Am I actually doing things that are aligned with me?" Um great. Mm-hmm. What uh, so we're going to do a f- wrap up with this um thing called overrated underrated. I'm going to say a thing and then you'll say whether you think it's overrated or underrated and give one sentence on why. Um and so the first thing is is filling the pipeline with marginalized STEM talent is that overrated or underrated?
0: Uh, underrated and why, um, it has not been understood enough about what we're doing is we're removing unfair barriers that never should have been there in the first place.
1: Yep. Cool. Um, beautiful. What about, um, what about tech's ability to democratize access to wealth? Is that overrated or underrated?
0: Uh, <laughs> it's overrated in terms of how it's practiced. Um, and it is underrated in trying out new models.
1: Yeah, I like that. It's like, oh, wow, we can democratize access to everything. It's like, wait a second. Is this, um, aren't these the same people that had power in the past? Yeah. Um, okay, great. This one's kind of a weird overrated underrated, and it's its almost like putting up a false binary that I think might be difficult, but, but I want to ask anyway. So it's like, is, what do you think? you could even say, you could either say it as overrated, underrated, or like, which one's a bigger problem, quote unquote? Is it the problem that women have in tech or the problem that like, kind of like racial, you know, like BIPOC groups have in tech? Which one is like bigger?
0: Um, well, it, it's, so first of all, I always take an intersectional look. yeah. And so we have BIPOC women who are, you know, suffering the most Abuse and exclusion oh, and yeah. unfair, unfair. They got boat you know. Yeah. So I think I think that's um, that's my answer.
1: <laughs> yeah, got it, got it, got it. Um, yeah, that there's uh, okay, great. I'm, I'm I'm fine with that. I would, you know, I, well, let, let me actually let me push you. Let me push you. Mm-hmm. Do you do you think for that you know that BIPOC woman is is it, does she experience more kind of crap from society as she's trying to build a company? Because of her womanness or because of her bipochness or blackness or whatever?
0: Well, it's an interesting question, and I think um, I've heard many black women, many Latinx women, um, talk about their inability to disaggregate that. that when they walk in a room and they're they're ignored or they walk in a room and they're doubted, they actually don't know which it is. Um, sometimes there's an overtly, racialized or sexualized comment or question that gives a hint but sometimes they just know that they're not being taken seriously and they don't know why
1: yeah yeah okay okay cool 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 Cool. i'm fine with that i'm fine with that um beautiful well thank you so much frida for coming on the show for folks who want to yeah and 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 folks who want to check out frida on twitter she is the real frida that's Mm -hmm. t-h-e R-E-A-L and then F-R-E-A-D-A. You can also check out the book, uh, closingtheequitygap.com. Yeah, it's just a cool book to understand. Just like, just a bunch of cool stories of just like founders doing cool stuff. Um, And so check that out. And then also if you want to, um, you know, Co- collaborate with them, work with them, do whatever, be a, um, an entrepreneur that wants to go through this stuff, um, check out KapoorCapital.com. That's K-A-P-O-R, um, Kapoor, sorry, KapoorCapital.com, uh, kaporcapita um, um, com. Anything else you want to say, Frida, for our listeners today?
0: No. Well, thank you for your interest in what we do and your enthusiasm for it. And uh, I hope to see lots more gap-closing companies.
1: Yeah, me too. Me too. Um, Yeah, thanks for all that you do as well. And um, thanks for listening, everybody. Goodbye, y'all. Bye. Thanks so much for listening today. If you like the show, please give us a five-star podcast review or subscribe on YouTube. And if you'd like to chat about this episode with a community of amazing, smart, ambitious, divergent people, come on by and join our Discord. You can find it at root.co. That's R-O-O-T-E.co. And then finally, if you'd like to contribute to these ideas being shared more widely in society, you can support the podcast production team at patreon.com slash reese lindmark. That's patreon.com slash R-H-Y-S-L-I-N-D-M-A-R-K. Thanks and see you here for the next episode.
0: Bye.